The South is full of history, extraordinary tales of questionable characters, outlaws, heroes, and thought-provoking narratives passed down from generation to generation like grandma's recipes. These real-life stories and exaggerations of fiction have helped shape the South and have created a larger-than-life accounts of legend. Each week we will uncover fun facts of historical events, interesting places, famous people, and everything in between from all around the South. Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app to listen to the show for free. So grab your sweet tea, fried green tomatoes, and pull up a chair as we uncover little-known facts about the uncommon history of the South. Hello and welcome to Uncommon History. I'm Brian. And I'm Harold. Harold, did you know that Uncommon History Podcast is now in the top 5% of all podcasts? Is that in the county? In, in the, the world. No. We are. We just went from 10% to the top 5%, which Joe Rogan, to measure it, you know, Joe Rogan yep. is in the top 1%. So. We're no Joe Rogan, but it's not bad for two boys from Paraville that nobody knows about. Yeah, well, we we set out to just tell stories and have a good time and share them with people. And Well, the whole point of this is I wanted to capture all your great stories so they wouldn't be lost. Well, and since I'm too dumb to write uh, <laughs> and can't write books, I, I had to talk about it. Well, <laughs> so. since you bring up books, my second book is out. It's a Bible study book on Amazon. I will put that mm-hmm. link uh, in our show notes too. Mm-hmm. So my second book what's, is out. What's, what's this one is a Bible study for women, <clears throat> but it's, it's really can be used by anybody, but it's, it's great for any age, teenagers, you know, somebody young that's wanting to learn the Bible, or if you're just wanting to help uh, memorize Bible verses and, and what they mean and stuff, right. it's just a good start. It's, right. it's, it's real, it's no great deep theological book. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> capable of that. So, but it's, it's a good basic Bible study. It's good for groups and, uh, so, right. Well, good, good. Um, so, there's been some big doings going on in Perryville, Kentucky. Why don't you catch us up on what you've been doing the past couple of weeks? Well, um, we got a call from a company that wants to do uh, a uh, program. It's similar to ghost programs you see on the Travel Channel, Discovery Channel, or History Channel, or whatever. And it's called Haunted Discoveries. And uh, this company came and. Uh, uh, had already contacted us some time ago and and spent almost uh, three or four days in Perryville filming and and uh, we we I took two days with them um, not two days all day long but two separate days probably two or three hours each so we did a lot of filming a lot of storytelling um, and the way I understand how this works is this production company is go is they have companies bidding for this so. It will probably they already done season one and which it hasn't been on TV yet, but it will be, and then we will be on season two, is the way I understand it. And it kind of covers the history and the ghost stories it, that go along with these historical yeah, locations. A, a, and, a little different than the other ghost programs. <clears throat> this one will be more history oriented. Yeah, which really fits me better. Yeah, because I'm not a, a, a big ghost storyteller. Never, never really did a lot of that until they asked me to do that for the. At Perryville, but uh, it's it's just a it's a real fun thing to do. I got to know the guys; they were great to work with. Uh, I think it's going to be a quality show. They really work hard, and uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing how it comes out. We we also got some plans to do some more with them, and uh, we will keep our listeners 
posted on that as it goes. So what you're telling me is that you could end up being the next Turtle Man. If if everything goes <laughs> if, if if everything goes as planned, then maybe that'll happen. We'll, but I don't we'll, know. we'll call you the History Man. Yeah. So what we're going to do next week is we're going to have to go take some pictures because I want to make sure when all this hits and goes big that we have T-shirts with your face on it saying history. Well, man. see, that's the problem. See, so <laughs> the, the people in these podcasts, one of the things I told Brian uh, when we started this was it, it got good because nobody has to look at me when I when I finally figured out what a podcast was. <laughs> so now it's <laughs> we've opened a can of worms here that uh, <laughs> I believe Turtle Man best me there. Well, right, listen, I, okay. as soon as uh, I'll definitely uh, buy one of my buy one of our own merch for that because I'll definitely have a shirt with your your face on oh, it. It says oh, History please, Man. No, so. please. Also, do you want to tell about uh, this Saturday the Perryville Ghost his, uh, History Ghost Walk? Yes, Perryville, Kentucky. By the way, uh, folks, um, we're doing. A, I think we're having a Christmas parade, and at nine o'clock that night, we're doing our probably last Ghost Walk for the year. Uh, if they haven't already sold out, uh, they have been selling out pretty quickly. But if uh, anybody's interested, downtownperville.com, if you want to look that up, uh, the Main Street Project there heads that up. And uh, I'll be doing probably the last one of the year because of the weather and the cold. So hopefully if the weather cooperates, we'll have it. And if not, we'll probably just be ready for next year. All right. Well, our guest tonight is a native of Owensboro, Kentucky. He resides in Frankfort, Kentucky, and he works for Kentucky's largest public relations firm, RunSwitch PR. He's also the author of Dark Days in the Ohio Valley, Woody Mellinger III. Welcome to Uncommon History. Welcome, Woody. Thank, thank you very much, fellas. Very nice to be with you all. Thanks for having me. Now, Woody, i got to ask you a quick question before we get into it. Now, my bachelor's degree is in public relations. Do you have a public relations degree? I do not, Brian. Actually, I um, went to school for history. I um, loved history growing up, had a, a dad who was a 30-year uh, veteran of high school history teacher, and my mom was also in the education field, and so um, really loved history, and so went after a, um, a bachelor's in that from University of Kentucky, and then liked it so much that I got my master's uh, from Western Kentucky University, and then um, my uh, career path, interestingly, is just taking me in some different directions, but no, I do not have a PR degree at all, just in history, and uh, then a lot of on-the-job learning over the years. Well, the reason I ask, because I, anywhere I go, I've never met anybody else with a public relations degree, <laughs> and I have one, and I don't work in public relations, and so... Well, in a way you it, Well, in a way, in a way yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I went into law enforcement. <laughs> you know, I've spent 26, seven years in law enforcement. So I guess you could say that that is yeah, public relations. But Woody, not, I've got a question. Oh, I'm sorry. Didn't mean but, you know, that's not the typical, no. typical, to, you know, what you would be doing or expect to do with a public relations degree. So, right. <laughs> Woody, I've got a question. The, mo the question I get asked all the time, and I'm sure you've heard this too, is when did you get interested in history and how did you get interested in history and why are you interested in history? Can you, can you explain that a little bit, but maybe better than I can because I can't explain it. <laughs> no, it it is. It, it gets in your in your blood for sure, doesn't Harold? I I, uh, I definitely attribute a lot of it to um, growing up in in a house where I had a, a dad who always had on the um, nightly news, and then would 
over the dinner table a lot of times give us uh, quizzes on some of the current events and also history uh, that he was teaching. And so I guess there was definitely some um, organic um, uh, predisposition for that in my household. But I uh, maybe much like you guys have just always been fascinated by the stories around me. And uh, in particular, um, I guess as a teenager, local history really started to appeal to me because um, in our family, we did not travel a lot and go a ton of places and, and see the world or even the United States. But I always love to uh, read the historical markers as we drive around Kentucky. And um, to me, being able to uh, look at local history and walk in the places where things actually happened uh, that a lot of folks weren't aware of just always fascinated to me. And I looked at it as a, uh, a great gift sometimes to be able to unwrap those histories and be able to share that with people who just like me had no idea that uh, that these things had happened right in their neighborhoods or in their cities. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a uh... I've always kind of thought maybe if you if we don't appreciate what we have right under our nose, why would we won't drive or fly or whatever halfway across the world, you know, to see another world? And I, we can enjoy all those things, but yeah, uh, I, I really wish I could explain why I've always been so history driven, but I can't. So I, I just quit trying. I just tell people I was born that way, and <laughs> I've had I guess a lot of influences, but we won't get into that. Uh, what do you, what made you decide to write the book? That is a great question. It actually goes back to um, when I was mentioning there, kind of discovering an, um, a previously unknown thing from my own community. Back when I was um, working on uh, my uh, graduate work at Western Kentucky University, I was actually reading a book for uh, American legal history, not anything to do with Kentucky. It was actually about the um, Brown versus Board of Education um, uh, decision there for desegregation, and it was a national book. And when I was reading it, it mentioned in there um, that one of the most heinous lynchings of the era when it was talking about the, I think the uh, um, 18 or this this one rather would have been the early 1900s it said actually took place in Livermore Kentucky and so to me someone growing up in Owensboro Livermore was just about 15 20 miles south of where I grew up and I had never ever heard of any sort of lynching much less one that garnered national attention that happened you know just one county south of where I lived and so that set me out on um, just kind of a uh, uh, a bit of exploration and so uh, took me to our local library looking through microfilm and starting to read some of the old newspaper articles and uh, it was it was honestly just something that to me was such a compelling story that I felt like it would be a great topic for uh, a master's thesis and so I originally um, did a, a case study on three Western Kentucky lynchings there around Owensboro in uh, the early 2000s. And then um, later in life here in around 2018, 2019, I decided I would turn that into a book because I know those are a lot more um, accessible than sometimes the uh, theses that are uh, in the uh, different college um, microfish and, and computer systems and things like that, I thought might get a little more um, um, ability for people to hear the stories too. And so it was, it came from just honestly hearing a story that I had no idea had happened in my area and wanting to um, study and explore that more and unravel that and, and let other people know as well. Okay. The name of your book, Dark Days in the Ohio Valley, Three Western Kentucky Lynchings and the date 1884 to 1911. Now, uh, Woody, my grandfather was born in 1885, and he died in 19, uh, 
excuse me, 1885. He born, oh, died in 1980. He was 95, if I've got my wow. math right. So, and I remember, uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is, was that a period of time, because the stories he told me, and I don't want to get into them because this is your podcast, but the stories he told me of that pe- time period, these Knight Riders, Ku Klux Klan, whatever names we want to put on them, they were called Knight Riders in my area. How, mm-hmm. Why was that such an era of that? Why, how did that come to be that they were so active in this period of time? Do you know? You, you know, that is a great question. And in my study of the surrounding kind of time period in the South, and I'm, I'm re- loosely, I know we can <laughs> categorize Kentucky a lot of different ways, whether it's South or not, but but at least in, in Kentucky and below, uh, that definitely, you're exactly right. That was a time of a lot of, um, of violence, um, both, you know, racial violence and also, as you say, things like the Knight Riders and, and, and folks, you know, taking uh, vengeance on on. Uh, fellow folks that were maybe doing things that um, economically were beneficial. And so, you, you know, that is, that is a really good question. And from my study, it really seems to me that there was definitely kind of a cauldron of violence that um, emerged after that post-Civil War period where um, you had, you know, folks that had, had fought in, in that big war, but then, you know, obviously that comes to an end, but you've still got people with some um, vengeance and grudges and obviously the racial component of that as well, trying to integrate a whole new uh, segment of society um, with with Blacks becoming um, a part of of, uh, civil society along with Whites with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And so I definitely think there was a lot of friction, I guess to put it nicely, um, between different elements in society and particularly with with the racial violence, the fact that African-Americans for the first time were uh, not um, uh, seen as chattel slavery, but as fellow citizens, that obviously had some serious ramifications for um, people that, that maybe didn't want to see, you know, them succeed or did they, just did self- they feel economic- threatened. They, did they yes, feel threatened? Economic- Absolutely. Absolutely. All of a sudden they're competing for jobs, competing for the same communities, those sort of things. And so absolutely. I think that that is just a um, it is it's a sad fact. But I do think from that Civil War period, post-Civil War period, when Reconstruction kind of fell apart there um, from the 1880s all the way up until really, honestly, uh, World War One or so, it did per- seem to be a particularly violent uh, time in history. And I know in Kentucky, we've got the famous uh, global assassination that fits right in the middle of that time period and just so many uh, things with the Night Riders and the um, feuds that went on in eastern Kentucky mountain counties, but definitely seems to be a particularly violent time in that, that era there from between the Civil War and the Second World War. It seemed to be a mentality of taking things in their in their own hands, each community. There was a story in our, our two communities of Parksville and Perryville, Kentucky, to where he had a group of guys from one town would go to the other town and carry out uh, a lynching or a whipping or a whatever. And then the other town would, they would come, you know, vice versa. So they, they, they would trade out. I've never, I thought, well, I don't know. I'm not for sure the reasons for that uh, other than to be more anonymous, but in these Mm, little small communities, I mean, it's just like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand. I mean, everybody knew everybody. Yeah. yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so I don't know exactly how that worked. But what's uh, what's one of your lynching stories that you want to share with us tonight or part of it or whatever? 
Sure, sure. One, I think that that's that's fascinating. And, and Brian, I know particularly with, with, with your line of work as a um, um, jailer there, um, I know my brother as well is is jailer in Davis County, actually, where the story um, that our account takes place. But that one had, I think, a lot of, of interesting components to it, too, it was in July of 1884 in Owensboro in, in western Kentucky. And there was an African-American field hand who um, was charged with sexual assault. And, you know, as you know, I'm sure from, from many of the uh, lynchings of this era, that was a very common offense that um, uh, people would would be lynched for African Americans were lynched for was you know either sexual assault or assault of a, a, a white female and so that that was the case in in that particular instance of um, a field hand who was um, charged with that and so the jailer there in Owensboro he of course took the uh, prisoner there and at the time the jailer's residence was also on the courthouse square along with the jail and so um, there were a lot of rumblings around town there uh, that there would likely be a lynching because there was so much attention for this particular crime. And so the uh, jailer had done things like um, take the gentleman by the name of Dick May was the was the accused there, took him up to the roof of the courthouse one night to hide him and did have some special deputies and things that were, were trying to maintain the, uh, the peace. And on one particular night, though, unfortunately, on uh, July the 14th, uh, there was a, a masked mob that did converge there at the uh, courthouse and um, as they were trying to take the prisoner one thing that's so interesting I think about this story that you don't at least in my my reading of history have never seen um, played out um, anywhere else in the south or the mid-south was uh, jailer Lucas actually fought um, with a shotgun to defend his uh, prisoner and wanted to make sure that they would not take uh, Mr. May and, and, you know, just caution them that, you know, hey, you know, he may be guilty, but we're going to make sure that the courts take care of this and, you know, don't do this. Well, they get into a gunfight and um, the jailer is firing at the mob. The mob is firing at the jailer. And in that um, um, gunplay there, the jailer is actually shot. And um, the mob presses in and, and breaks into the residence there to retrieve the keys and to go take the uh, prisoner. And so um, the jailer is actually mortally wounded there and, and dies um, as, as the night progresses. They do take Mr. May and, and of course, um, take him and hang him there on the courthouse square. But uh, to me, it was such a fascinating story because not only do you have the tragedy, obviously, of this um, Mr. May who was, was without a trial you also have this um law official law enforcement law enforcer that was was trying to do the right thing and make sure that his community didn't abandon the rule of law and, and, and he's actually killed was he the the jailer at the time wasn't he a former confederate soldier he was he, you're exactly right which even i think makes it such such a um a more interesting story because you know I, i'm sure you guys can attest but you know a lot of times narratives are 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 can be lazy you know people say everybody's like this or everybody's like that and you know there's these stereotypes no matter who you're talking about and this story kind of defi defies a lot of those because you've got a white uh, uh law enforcement corrections official and he also had served in the confederacy and so you know just to 
someone with a broad sweep of history would say, well, that that official would never, mm. you know, do this that he did here. And so to me, it's a fascinating story in and of itself, but also with maybe some implications that, you know, people are individuals. And it's really important to take a look at, you know, what actually happens and not just make assumptions because exactly. uh, this gentleman lost his be, life. I found out to be more the rule than the exception. You know, and you, you start painting things with a broad brush, and I'm guilty of as much as anybody, but you you don't account for that human factor that not everybody's unique and different, and uh, not everybody thinks the same. They remember that story, I think Shelby Foote told it, about that guy, the kid in Georgia, the Confederate soldier, they captured him, and the Union soldiers captured him, you know, and he, they asked him, they said, you know, what are you fighting, or they may have asked him about he hated Abe Lincoln or if he this or that. And he didn't even hardly know who Abe Lincoln was. But all he said was the reason I'm fighting is because you all are here. Because, you know, I mean, he, he was defending his home. And so he, he didn't, he didn't hate it. He wasn't a, a, a person that kept up with the, uh, the state rights or the slavery or anything. He heard talk and he heard rumble. But the biggest reason he was out there is because they were in his home. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, <laughs> Again, it, we, we can learn a lot. That's why we study history, hopefully, is that we learn from it. Now, have you, do you know of any of the stories that you've researched that without a doubt that the person, the victim, was, was innocent? You know, that is a terrific question and one that I've asked myself a lot, Harold. The, in the stories, the three stories that I capture, uh, to, to me, for my reading, again, um, just of what I have as primary sources, and I, as you, you all well know, um, when you're looking at that period from 1884 to 1911, uh, you know, you're relying heavily upon on newspapers, some of which, you know, you, you can tell there is some embellishment in there, there's some contradiction, and as, as you all know, as historians, too, you have to sometimes make um, editorial judgments and kind of figure out, you know, okay, I've got these three sources, which one, which which two, you know, agree, and so to my reading, um, the three um, um, I guess accused definitely um, were 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 likely at the scene, if not guilty of the crime. Again, that's just from a reading of the um, of the newspaper accounts of the time. And and one thing that I found very interesting during my research, the local newspapers, whether it's in Davis County or next door in Hancock County or McLean County a lot of times they will not always jive with what a day or two later will appear in the New York Times or with the um, Chicago Tribune who covered a lot of those during the day, uh, during that that time period. And so it's very difficult sometimes to get the exact facts. But to me, um, Mr. Uh, Dick May, who was we discussed there with the Owensboro lynching, um, he he likely, he actually, according to newspaper accounts, confessed that he had um, had intimate relations with, with the, the young girl that he was accused of, but said that it was 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 um, uh, mutual, and so, so that it was consensual between the two. Consensual, thank you. Yeah. Yes, consensual. Um, there was in in the second lynching in Hallsville, Kentucky, next door uh, in Hancock County. That one involved a an African American gentleman who was um, charged with assaulting a young girl, and then the um, the most recent one, the 1911 one in Livermore, was a um, uh, a black man who was in a white pool hall and essentially got into a uh, gunfight and did end up shooting um, a white man who did not die but was nonetheless shot there. So the facts in the stories do seem to point to the fact there at least probably was some guilt. I think one of the interesting things, though, to see is that if there had been 
court trials for any of those men, you probably would have had witnesses that would have been able to share some more details that we don't have, unfortunately, because of the, the nature of a lynching being, you know, justice without, <laughs> without yeah, any. Proof. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. degrees of guilt. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 you know, of course we all know the way our modern system works There's degrees of guilt and it could be involuntary. He could be voluntary manslaughter, you know, all kinds of different charges. The result was the same, but the intent, intent, and the the uh, circumstances around it could be very different, you know. So mm-hmm. yeah, it, without a trial, have, you know, <laughs> we don't have anything but really chaos. I mean, uh, it, but what do you think is uh, these when these guys, these mobs? Do you think the law knew who they were? There was a story in my family about one of my grandfathers on my mother's side uh, dressed in some kind of garb in a parade, and somebody in the family recognized his shoes. And this was like during this time period when, when it was just very obvious that, you know, the local guys was involved in that. And, and they said that he got very upset that, that he was recognized. And the, the whole thing to me is just like, okay, if you're, if you're so convinced you're right, first of all, why do you cover your face yeah. and do things behind in secrecy. a veil in secrecy if you're so right? You know, um, so anyway, there's a lot of issues with that. But have you, have, did you think the law knew who these, these mobs were? That is another great question. And in, in the fact is, I do think there was, particularly in the Hallsville lynching in 1897, because the Owensboro 1884 lynching, um, there, there were masked men. And so I guess you could conceivably think, you know, at least they were hiding their identity. As, as you referenced there, you know, how well, you know, it remains to be seen. But in Hallsville, there were actually, it was in uh, broad daylight, and um, they took him from, from the jail and, and took him across the street and, and hung him there at the courthouse and so the a lot of even the contemporary newspapers made a lot about the fact that you know the inquest when it was made said that it was at the hands of persons unknown which i think was very typical of that day you know we would just say you know we 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 tried to figure out who it was but we didn't and the newspapers (laughs) even Yes, yeah. the newspaper even said, you know, that's very unlikely. What's really, to me, though, stands out is in the 1911, and the reason I picked kind of um, lynchings about a dozen or so years apart is to see how the media coverage and the legal system kind of changed over that time. And by Livermore, there, my final one in 1911, the McLean County lynching, there actually is um, an indictment of 18 uh, men that were at the scene that night. And so they were acquitted. Uh, of course, there was, there was not, um, there were not charges that stuck, but they, they were at least indicted, which in that day was a pretty um, phenomenal occurrence. I think, in, in fact, the newspaper calls it a thunderbolt out of the clear sky uh, that they actually named those 18 individuals and, and, and made them stand trial for that. Um, so I do think that there were likely uh, law enforcement officials who probably had suspicions or, or had thoughts about that. I will have to compliment, at least in these three stories um, that I cover, 
the, um, of course, the jailer himself who, who, who died um, in Owensboro and then the um, law enforcement officials both at Hallsville and Livermore, they do seem, at least from newspaper accounts, to really um, be frustrated by the fact that uh, the rule of law wasn't upheld and that no one was coming forward with um, witness testimony and that sort of thing about who was involved. Um, but I do suspect there were people in the community who did obviously know. And, and as, as has been said many times, what allowed a lot of these things to persist for so long was not the bad actors themselves. It was the fact that, you know, someone like us might wake up the next day and say, you know, uh, shoot, I wish that wouldn't happen, but I guess things like that just do. And so, you know, that proverbial, um, all that has to happen for bad things to happen is for good men to do nothing. I think you see that play out a lot, unfortunately, in those circumstances where uh, neighbors and, and um, acquaintances maybe didn't want to um, get their, their fellow citizens in trouble. Did you, what, is, is there anything doing your research that jumped out at you that really surprised you? Is there, is there know, anything that just really hit you? It's like, wow, you know, how, the, how did that happen? Yeah, great question. Again, the, the newspaper coverage was really astounding to me because, you know, I guess I knew that in this era there was a little more sensationalism. But some of the headlines and some of the, um, I guess, commentary, you know, in the, the factual stories, you know, I know we, we, we kind of bemoan that now and talk about how, how that has tainted our, our media so much with, with commentary and, and bias. But it was pretty fascinating with the local newspapers to see some of the headlines in, in Hallsville. Uh, one of the, the headlines said that um, after the uh, Mr. Bushrod had been captured, said that lynching was, was too good for that black brute. And just headlines like that, that you would think, whoa, that's not something you'd expect to see printed in a newspaper. You know, maybe someone's personal um, you know, diary, things like that. But uh, you do see that change a little bit from 1884 and into 1911. But some of those early ones, um, it, it was really interesting to see. In fact, one night before the Owensboro lynching occurs, the um, messenger newspaper um, said that, you know, they needed to go to deadline. And so they were hopeful that if, if the lynching was going to occur, that it would hurry up and come so they could report on oh, it. Just, I think it was, to me, it was just, you know, kind of modern day CNN place. or old time <laughs> CNN. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, to me, and, and, and this is getting maybe a little bit off subject, but it, it, it is about what we're talking about. But I think some years ago, I began to notice that I used to hear the news. Okay. What happened? Then we began to get people to come on there to decipher for us what happened. And then they began to tell us about what was the motivation behind what happened. And next mm -hmm. thing you know, we're being fed uh, whatever. Uh, and I'm like, I just want to know the news. I don't, I'll decide what, I, <laughs> you know, just tell me the facts. And I've, I've got a brain and we'll figure it out, you yeah. know. Mm -hmm. and well, I hey, think that's where the media sometimes goes wrong. Woody, thank you for being part of Uncommon History Tonight. Where can folks find your book at? Absolutely. Thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate what you all do. I'm a huge fan of your all's podcast. I appreciate being turned on that for my, uh, my brother and uh, love what you all do. If uh, people are interested in uh, my book, it is available at uh, KentuckyHistory.net, or you can find it directly on Amazon, Dark Days in the Ohio Valley. Uh, and again, that's uh, KentuckyHistory.net or available on Amazon anytime. 
All right. Well, thank you for being part of Uncommon History Podcast. If you would like to help support our podcast, please share our podcast with your family and friends. Make sure to subscribe for free on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, iHeart, YouTube, or your favorite podcast listening app. And if you listen to our podcast on Apple, please leave a five-star review. Uh, or in a comment. This will help others find our podcast. Uh, to find out more about our podcast and keep up with what Harold and I are doing, you can follow us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we're now on TikTok. Don't forget that Christmas time coming up. We have a great uh, store full of merch uh, that you can help, and the link will be in our show notes. Uncommon History of the South is created and produced by Harold Edwards and Brian Wolford. Thank you, Woody. <laughs>